Out of the Frying Pan with Isabel Fry. Join me, Isabel Fry, as I talk to people about things that are interesting, an eclectic series of conversations to bring spice to your life. Today we speak to Joseph Motsepe, all the way from the UK, thanks to the superb technology of Solid Gold Podcast Studio. Why Joe? Well, for a number of reasons, he's a person of interest to me, but for today, it is because of his passion for the welfare state. He is a living, breathing, sentient advocate for this amazing notion that a government should be primarily concerned for creating great lives for the people who live in it, not bare minimal standards, but enjoyable, safe and good lives, and that anything short of that is an outrage. So welcome, Joe. You are my first guest on this new series of podcasts called Out of the Frying Pan. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm happy to be here. Great. When I first met you, I couldn't believe my ears that you were openly praising the concept of a welfare state. Then I discovered that you really live in one and that this was not some academic flight of fancy. The welfare state, public transport, and then to top it all, public libraries. And you've lived in South Africa too and have a special history with the country. So how could we not start with you? But first, just so that our listeners get to know you a little, a bit about yourself. You were in fact born in Pretoria, South Africa, just down the road from the studio here. But then you grew up in the UK, plus a few other countries. So how did that work? Well, yeah, um, thanks for that intro. Um, yeah, I was born in Pretoria many, 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 many years ago. How that worked out was that my father and mother became active members of the ANC, and my father was given the mandate to become a representative of the ANC in Europe. So he made his way out of the uh, South Africa first in the late 60s, and then my mother followed soon after. Uh, my mother's route out was a bit more complicated than my dad. He was a headmaster of a school involved in, he was in, um, yeah, he was in education. So he then was given a scholarship to go and study in the United States. My mum had to make her own way into a neighbouring state and then hand herself in as a political refugee. We came under the um, care and safety of the United Nations. And from there, we were first flown to Norway. So that was my first time ever being in, in cold weather and being in, the, in seeing snow for the first time. But I, one of the great benefits is I learned to ski, you know, which is fantastic. So it was all a great, exciting adventure for me. I was being only, what, two, three years old at the time. So we stayed in Norway. I can't even remember how long we were in Norway, but um, we were there for some time. And then the next country we visited was uh, the United Kingdom. So I came here. I was probably about five, four or five years old. And basically, the United Kingdom became the family base. We lived here. Uh, my father worked at the ANC office. My mum got herself a job, just in a you know regular job in a business. Uh, I think she was doing secretarial work or something like that. I can't remember. But yeah, uh, the United Kingdom became our base. Uh, my father then uh, worked his way in with the and see, even though he did have a nine to five, it's the same as my mum, an ordinary job. He actually used to work for the Greater London Council, which no longer exists, but he was working there for some many years. 
and then also working for the ANC. And then eventually he gave up the work of GLC and was mandated to become a chief representative of the ANC. Then he was then moved to Algeria. That was his first station. And he went there first, and then we followed later. And he was set to, to work there for three years. Uh, as I said, the UK was always our base. Um, so after that three years, then we came back to the United Kingdom, stayed again until waiting for his next mission. So you learned to ski and you're fluent in French. Uh, quite unusual, but very helpful, I'm sure. The French maybe more than the skiing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I've only had a few opportunities to ski again since that time, gratefully, because I'm cold, as you know, it's not that great. But um, yeah, uh, French has been really helpful for me. Well, thanks for that introduction, that insight into a kind of quite complex world growing up. And you say that growing up as a, a child political refugee in London, there were a number of events that children of political refugees, ANC members, uh, were expected to participate in. Do you want to just uh, tell us a bit about that? Yes. From a very young age, we were encouraged, and that's putting it mildly, we were encouraged to to attend uh, political meetings, rallies, demonstrations, marches, in partnership with the anti-apartheid movement of the United Kingdom. Um, and the London anti-apartheid movement was very, very active and uh, very powerful. So we joined a lot of marches. I think from the time that, um, as far back as I can remember, I've stood somewhere at a demonstration. I've marched through the majority of London from anywhere in London to the South African embassy. I'm very familiar with that. I've been in if not hundreds, thousands of political meetings. And as a kid growing up, I, you know, I was kind of, I lived in two worlds when I think back on it because I'm, there I am. I'm just a kid growing up, going to normal state schools in London, living a life as a normal London kid, you know, in the kid, being a kid, playing football, running around with my mates, doing things that every young kid does. And then at the, Back at home, there's my parents are very, very much into the, the struggle. So we had to watch news bulletins, uh, you know, from every news bulletin on the hour we had to watch or, or, it, or, or that was what was on the telly. So if you're sitting there, that is on telly and that's what you're going to watch. So there's that different life. And we would have things that we'd speak about in our daily lives as kids. And it was not uh, put down or in any way kind of too harsh, but it was just this kind of thing that, well, okay, that's really lovely that you got that and I'm really happy for you. That's a really great achievement that you did at school there. That's really good, proud of you. But remember, you know, the struggle is there and we've got to remember that this is that and South Africa's got a better thing than that and it's like that, which is kind of, it kind of feel, okay, cool. Well, that's really good. Uh, this place that, I had no memory of that time, just couldn't remember it at all. As, as I said, I left so young and all I knew was my streets of London and, and, and wanting to play football and play sports and be with my mates. But I always did sense that difference because of that being a political exile, my parents being political exile. And that was a, 
yeah, that was felt very much so. It must have been really strange having that dualism, uh, but also it's the only reality that you know. So I'd like to pick up on sort of towards the end of that story. So growing up a political refugee exile, and then after 1994, um, your parents came home first, and then you and your siblings came home. And I use home in inverted commas because you were coming home really to a home that you'd only known from stories and yearnings and campaigns. You first lived in Mamalodi, so a township coming in from North London. That must have been extremely foreign, uh, meeting people, your family. Can you explain to listeners just how that difference, how that felt for you uh, as a young person who were you really the two parts of you were coming together in a way that nobody could really know how it felt uh, share with us if you can yeah as you say yes there was that duality so coming back home was a yeah really different experience for me Oh, yeah, for a few reasons. For me, it was that um, I first came home because at the time uh, my mum had become quite seriously ill. So that was part of the main reason that I, I was going to come back, uh, had to come back very, very quickly. So that was a issue that, uh, you know, was first kind of worrying. But in, then at the same time, there was that excitement because if you can imagine, for the age of four or five, that has been my constant in my life that I knew that my parents had spoken so much about South Africa and the wonders and beauty of this, of this land, the stories about the landscape, the, even down to you know, um, the water being so much better and, and fresh fruits growing in your backyard and, you know, the sun and the, you know, the wonderful landscapes, the felt and all this stuff that just painted beautiful pictures in my mind. And so I was excited, you know, really excited to be coming back to see that for myself. This um, this land that I personally didn't think that we would ever get to see again because following through the news and just seeing the brutality and the, the might and power that this um, country had, I just thought, no way. There's no way that a group of guys that, you know, who I called uncle and auntie are going to be able to overthrow that. I mean, look, they've got tanks and fighter aircraft and whatnot. And, what, and I just thought, you know, as a youngster, I just thought, no, nah, there's no way. Because I watch movies, you know, I watch movies. And very rarely do you see that. You know, you just see this almost like American power that South Africa had, that just bombing everywhere and blasting and killing people. So I just thought that wouldn't happen. So to finally, finally see Mandela coming out of jail and it happening in front of me in my life, I was like, no, okay, this is this is this is not real. Okay, but I'm going and it's exciting. Exciting. So there was a sadness and excitement. So getting to Mummy Lodi, as you said, yeah, my parents came and they went to the family home, which was uh, um just as you said in the township. Uh, normal four room with an extent with an they'd made an extension. The part of my family is my dad's sister who was uh, living in that house at the time. Um, she then gave the house to my mum and dad, and went and uh, she had been in the process of building a, a larger home, a larger four or five bedroom home, uh, still in Mamilodi Township, but it's further on. So my parents had this 
four-room extended home in Mamelodi. So my first impressions were not good because I, um, I, I was just when I got there and there was dusty streets, no paving, it's just dust, and uh, and then seeing these some of these shacks and things like that, and just kind of, I was kind of like, hang on, where's all the you know, where's all the wonders of the, you know, the beautiful felt and, uh, hang on, hang on, this isn't, this isn't what I had in my mind. But, uh, you know, I very soon, cause the excitement was so much. And then obviously the, um, having to, uh, worry about my mum, um, who unfortunately passed away while, you know, whilst I was there. So that was kind of tragic, but I was so happy for her because their dream for both of them was, just that to be home, you know, to be on their soil, to be there. So that was that brought you know great comfort, knowing that that she had achieved it, and they worked hard to achieve that goal. I mean, that's one thing that I I saw and I realised. So I was very happy uh, for both of them to to end up back at their soil. Yeah. So, but the uh, actually remember, I remember the uh, like the second day I was there, slept the night there. Um, very hot. That was one thing, you know. I'm used to having air con, air con, and all the all the home comforts, and you know, being in a home there where there was just a kind of like a fan, and it was only in the front room, and I was in this back room, and it was baking. That first night was wow. It was kind of very, very difficult. But yeah, the thing that was even made it even more <laughs> weird for me the next day was my cousin. Who's also called jo- Joseph, but so he's called Big Joe. I'm, I'm Little Joe. He's Big Joey and I'm Little Joe. He sort of brought me out and wanted to introduce me to the street, you know. Um, yeah, come on. Let's, uh, let's come out. Let's take a walk. And as we're walking, I saw a guy just come running out from a house opposite being chased by this guy with a huge rock in his hand. Oh, and they were running down the street and this guy. Jumped into another house, a bit other, and slammed the door. And this guy with a rock was outside, and I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! What's going on? What's going on?" And my cousin just said, ah, "Don't worry, they do that all the time. They're, they're mates. They always have a little scrap. Yeah, don't worry." And I just thought, "Whoa, okay, fair enough, <laughs> okay." And um, yeah, so that was my eye-opening first introduction to the streets of Mamilodi Zone Two, Mamilodi West Zone Two, D Two. <sighs> Thanks, Joe, for sharing that. But I'm now going to ask about that comparison because you you had quite a a visual picture of the the home in Mamelodi. And coming from the UK, which is a welfare state, uh, we'll talk about um, the fact that it's a dwindling, dwindling welfare state. But in the notion of the welfare state in which taxes are used from working people to ensure that everyone's got a decent house, decent healthcare, education and income. Now, in South Africa, a lot of people have been fed this liberal ideology of a small state, saying let the private sector provide what people need. The idea of a welfare state is a nanny state. But having lived in the UK most of your life, what are your views about the welfare state and the values that create and craft a state from the welfare state? The idea that people's well-being should be looked after, that women should be safe on the streets and in homes, um, and that everyone is entitled to a kind of regular equal base of decency. Your idea of, of do you think that the welfare state is a nanny state? Do you think that it has bad connotations? 
or do you see it as an enabling state just from your experience growing up? First, yeah, firstly, I think the welfare state is a is a fantastic, fantastic thing, a fantastic vehicle. It is, um, I mean, through through people's taxes, yes. There isn't a part of society that can really struggle and starve. I mean, you just said the comparison to, to, to South Africa. I saw that in South Africa, if you don't have any income, if you don't have a job, you, at the, the time I was living there, there wasn't any kind of any sort of benefit. If you didn't have a job, you had no income, zero, nothing. And I just couldn't get my head around that. I still can't. Um, I do understand there is a sort of a, a some sort of a, 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 a benefit that, that some people can have access to. But it, I just couldn't get my head around it. So in the United Kingdom, you there is uh, no way anybody um, can have access to the welfare state, which in, which for me is having an NHS that's a free health service, which is absolutely fantastic. No one can uh, go without, you know, if you get sick, you will be treated and you will be provided with the best of the best medicine and, and care that, that, is, that is available um, for, for anyone. Um, when, you, when you become of pensionable age, the state has a pension put aside for you because part of the benefits that people get here is uh, called national insurance. And that is taken out of your benefit that is there to make sure that once you reach a pensionable age, that will be sitting there. That pot will be there and you will have it. So every person over the age of 60, is 65 or 66 for men um, would have a uh, a uh, an, a pension to have to 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 have as theirs, um, whether you were on benefits or whether you had worked all your life, that is still part of the the, the agreement. Um, a welfare state will supply you with a home. You there is social homing uh, systems here. If a person hasn't been in work, has no real income, you can apply for um, ho- housing. And that house, once you allocated the house, it's yours for life. And you, you know, yours for life. And they will also pay the rent for that house. They will also pay any kind of taxes upon that home so that your benefit that is given to you is for you and you uh, alone. Okay. To pay, you can, you to use to, for, for you to pay, um, very, you know, your other like, water, electricity, so forth. But, um, I think in terms of the, you know, it's welfare state. The argument that it's a nanny state, I do see that argument, and I've you know uh, I've seen that because um, um, in some instances, yes, um, uh, I would say in in some instances it is can become sort of like a, a nanny state. There um, there are certain areas of it of of benefits where people have been able to take advantage of it in terms of of um okay, yeah basically like easy to to defraud the 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 system um so like say so sickness benefit uh, if you can go to improve to the, the the department of works and pensions that you have a an illness um you can then write yourself off work and you will be given extra benefit. So this is where the critics come in. They say there are a lot of well, shirkers or people who don't want to do any work and they want that extra bit of benefit. Um, 
they are able to get that. And um, that causes a lot of conflict because they are people with genuine non-visible uh, disabilities or illnesses that do need that uh, top up of benefit because it, it does need a lot of medication, which some of which is not on the NHS and, and, and is not available for free. So from what I hear, they really positive ways of, of the ways in which the welfare state builds people, creates opportunities, gives them a security. There are people who abuse that as they are everywhere. So uh, academics would call it errors of exclusion, people who shouldn't be entitled to. But the, the sense yeah. of stability and well-being and mental health Can you see, do you think there's a direct correlation between knowing that you have a safety net, as people have in the UK, however imperfect that is, and a situation in South Africa, for instance, where you're told, well, get up and, and look after it, uh, look after yourself, do it for yourself. I mean, can you sense almost a palpable difference in, in people's views of life as a result? Oh, yes, definitely, most definitely. In South Africa, in my, in my experience, um, seeing people who are not able to get work, there's a real sadness and a, and a downtroddenness that um, I witnessed. And, it, you know, it is just crippling. Um, I can see it. It's just, it's just crippling. So I guess definitely having the knowledge of a safety net knowing that no matter what happens, even if you have a job and you lose that job, you will never, you know, really end up on your knees or, or on the floor. And that definitely has a huge, huge um, mental kind of um, uh, sense of st stability. You know, if you, if you know that, you, you know, you're, okay, things can get bad, you lose a job, you, you know, difficulties in life, you will always have a safety net. And that mentally just makes people walk with a sense of pride you you can and you'll never be able to tell mm. because of that sense of pride that stability you can never tell if somebody's um lost their job is having trouble in their life or whatever because they just have that sense that well you know i'm okay it can be really bad around me but i'm okay i can't go you know that's i won't starve i won't lose my home I won't do and you know you, that gives you a huge sense of well-being and just encouragement um, and people can stand on their feet with pride and go and go and look for other work or go and sort the situation out whereas I saw in South Africa that that doesn't happen and I just see that that kind of real crippling just kind of I don't know the word disenfranchisement comes to my head because then people just what do they do they go and stand on a corner drinking loads of uh, drink loads of I've forgotten what the long bottles are called um, and and that just becomes a daily grind a just court. struggling to put courts that's it thank you just uh, you know trying to just get a day to finish basically and that that was just really really a painful thing to witness especially given the fact that you had seen people struggling their whole lives for liberation, for freedom. But I want to move from that, and that's been quite emotional evocation that you've just described. But the welfare state provides that safety net. It provides that sense that you can't 
fall below a certain threshold. But there are also aspects to it that um, you used to speak about when I first met you. And the one that strikes me is public libraries. You would hold firm on the benefits of public libraries. So for you, what, what does a public library signify? Because clearly it's more than just the books and the words. Oh, yeah. I, I love public libraries. I, I, I just think they're an amazing, amazing gift to um, every citizen uh, of the world that has public libraries. I just love them. I think they're fantastic. You know, to have a, a place, in, in, you know, in some places like my local library, it's almost it's also like a, a community center. You have certain people that you 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 see who go there regularly, and you know you kind of because you see each other, you, you can greet each other and say hello and, and and so forth, and you get to know the staff as well. So you know to the point of first name basis and check in on each other. But at the you know the same thing is just having the having access to you know a wealth of books and knowledge and just about anything that you need to look you need to find out or want to read you know from fiction to non-fiction to business and education and all things are there it's there um, and if it's not there you can order it and as you said there's technology there very fast broadband internet free access to computers printers scanners you walk in your library and all of that is available to you you know for a very very minimal price to print you know like 10p a page libraries are just they're just an amazing facility it's amazing and in this cold weather uh, as well it's a beautiful warm place to hang out there's all that they have every day every newspaper of the uk is there it's there on the shelf so you can walk in and now some of them have little cafes have a nice hot cup of coffee sit on beautiful sofas big comfy sofas read the, the day's papers from all of around the UK, every publication of the UK. And in some local uh, uh, libraries, like my local library, because there's a quite a big immigrant, uh, we're a very multi-ethnic uh, borough, you get papers from some of the uh, language groups that are here. So you, there's a lot of uh, Eastern Europeans here, so you get some Eastern European papers. There's a lot of a uh, big Somali community here. So you get uh, some, some Somali newspapers and then a Caribbean newspaper. You know, it's such a great facility and it's so sad when they start closing down due to lack of use. And, and I think that's just because people just don't know what is at their fingertips right there. It's so, so, so important that uh, libraries can thrive and survive. <laughs> so, Joe, the current Conservative or Tory government's been in power for 15 years would you say, looking back, that in general people are better off as a result of the growing privatisation um, and the introduction of the market as a preferred provider than the state, or do you think that there has you could you can sense a, a lack of well-being, a decline in well-being as the Tories have tried to prefer private market over the welfare state? Oh uh, yeah, most definitely. Actually, the biggest critics of the welfare state have been this government. And I personally have seen them, the way that they've put a really tight squeeze on the welfare state and people who benefit from the welfare state. What this market system has brought, in my view, it has just brought 
uh, a lot of wealth, a lot of money to a small percentage of the people of the, of the United Kingdom. It hasn't benefited everybody. And what I also have seen is the is that uh, you know the whole okay they came in with the austerity moves and saying no well we're in a time of austerity that was the first thing and that has gone on for years and it's still going on where you know well look we've got to tighten our belts we're all in this together all these fancy slogans uh, meanwhile they people through austerity those who um, the wealthiest and topped up on their wealth even more and the privatization of of national assets has been shocking. At the moment, this government is trying to break down the, the National Health Service and break it down so that they can privatize it and have these, uh, like a sort of, I believe, a kind of the American system of health where you would have to pay for certain services. Just the other day, as part of a National Health Service, just a simple thing like going to your GP or walking into a hospital to have uh, earwax removed has always been a free service. It's just free because there's a machine, they just do it, boom, boom. Now, what has happened is the NHS has been forced to send that, not do that service anymore. It's been moved to uh, private companies. So now, you, the, actually, there's a company here called Specsavers, which is, as, as in the, the name of the company, all they did, they were opticians, but they now have the contract to do earwaxing for a price. Uh, and it, it's, you know, people are, have been, are up in arms uh, that that service, which is so small and just so insignificant, uh, but, well, not insignificant, but it's just, it's just a, a start of this bringing down of this uh, wonderful system. So I see this 15 years as the, yeah, so decay of, uh, of the country and the squeeze on the less fortunate and the, the, the poor of the country to, to provide wealth for the you know the, the the rich well 2024 is an election year for the uk and yep. it's an election year for south africa so we in south africa are hoping to see the uh, establishment of a national health system uh, and we do hope that the demise and dismantling of the welfare state your side is, is going to be halted and turned around so thank you i do want to before we end however just ask a couple of questions because I'm fascinated by this duality that seems to that continues to exist. So, football. What club do you support in South Africa? What club do you support in the UK? Okay. Well, the club I support in South Africa is Mamelodi Sundowns. When I first arrived in South Africa, my cousin literally sat me down and said, "You know, this is Mamelodi, and this this place. We, we all support Mamelodi Sundowns here." That is our team. That is the only team worth supporting in Pretoria. And I said, okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm there. And that's that. Fortunately, a member of my extended family also was a Mamelodi supporter. And once he became mining magnet, Patrice went and bought Mamelodi Sundowns. So there's that extra uh, benefit for me to support that, that team, um, which is, yeah. And of course, they've done very well. And, and I believe that I put the idea in his head because um, I sat with him many, many years ago and I said, you know, you know what? You know, there's a guy in, in England who bought a team, you know, um, Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea football team. And I said, yeah, you know, he bought in best players, new training facilities, the whole thing. And I told him about that. I said, you know, you've got the money. Why don't you get, you know, get in there, 
get the facilities, do all those stuff, you know. So I do claim, I will claim that, claim that thing, even though he'll probably deny. <laughs> well, you said it first, right? And then being a North Londoner, what's your UK team? Well, there we go. Being a North Londoner, as you said, there's only, and you say North, it's North, N-O-R-F, North London. And um, being that from there and coming from that part of town, I grew up 15 minutes away, 15 minutes walk away from Highbury, Highbury Stadium. So I'm a true in the blood Arsenal football club supporter. I'm a gooner. You're a gooner. Never. Okay. I'm a gooner. Yeah. <laughs> um, the 2023 Rugby World Cup, did you support South Africa or the UK? I supported both ha. in my own way. <laughs> in my in my own way. I know I, I watched some of it with you and when South Africa was playing, just to tease you, I'd pretend I supported the other, other side. So I know that's why you're saying. Ha. Until it became but, clear uh, that South Africa was winning. Yeah. Then, you know, obviously you know, all bets are off. Uh, yes. Uh, um, I did actually want the UK, England to do, to do better, but uh no, too powerful. South Africa is too powerful in rugby. So, um, yeah, I did kind of uh, was very happy. And I am still very happy that uh, South Africa won. Uh, well, I can see that it, you can actually balance both of those quite well, I think. And then just finally, I have to ask you, Glastonbury 2023, is it true that you played on the pyramid stage? Yes, yes. One of the great things of living here is that uh, I got back into playing music a few years back and I've been a percussionist. I was trained to play hand drums, African drums, bongo drums, um, percussion by the late, great Julian Bahula, you know, uh, who who I've known since I was six years old. He took me under his wing and taught me how to play drums. And I was so happy and proud that uh, I was able to join a local community group. It started as a very small little local community group where the idea was to have a full-blown orchestra, you know, violins, violas, double cellos and the whole thing, but playing reggae music. I I joined a little charity group called the St. Paul's Reggae Orchestra, uh, we then thought, well, we need to expand a little bit. Uh, St. Paul's, by the way, is a part of Bristol, which is mainly uh, Afro-Caribbean. Um, so it's it's always had the image of being a very dangerous and, you know, oh, you know, a bad part of town. So the idea was to just make it be more um, friendly and have this, this new thing come out. Uh, the idea was to have this group that would play music, reggae music, and to try and invite the local community to, if you could play an instrument or if you wanted to learn an instrument, come and play with us. That grew, and we grew so much that we changed the name to the Bristol Reggae Orchestra. And that um, orchestra grew. We got more members. We then grew to 30, 35 people in the orchestra. And I think it's still growing now. So thankfully, we were asked to open Glastonbury to, to 23. And yes, I did play on the pyramid stage. I actually met and saw Elton John backstage and uh, a few of the other uh, artists who are performing. It was a fantastic day. I'm hoping to get a copy of the the video um, of that day, uh, but I've got photographs and I was given a commemorative backstage pass, which I've got in a frame 
in my front room. Great day. For when your grandchildren decide to um, disbelieve you. But thank you for that. Yes. Um, and thank you for sharing those parts of your life with us, the, the strange life of, of dualism. But also, particularly, Joe, thank you so much for sharing and inspiring me always to know that true flesh and blood can believe passionately in a welfare state. So thank you and have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks so much for inviting me, Isabel. Thanks so much. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.